Hello, and welcome to Feeding the Monkey, Volume 5. Today we're going to talk about colorful language and koala bears. Last week we talked about what would actually happen to the sun, as opposed to it simply disappearing. How does cancer kill? And what body parts can we do without? And there was actually a bunch of them, which was kind of weird. Um, so listener Jonathan reminded me about a study a few years ago that found there was no word from the, for the color blue until recently. Um, by recently, we mean as in around 1300 AD. Uh, one would assume that the color blue existed prior to that. Um, so what's the deal? Could humans simply not see it? Um, or what was that? Um, so, as I said, first shows up in the old French as bleu, uh, B-L-E-U, around 1300 A.D. Um, this is when it's actually uh, what we recognize as the word blue. Um, previously, it had been um, found in some Germanic terms, some of the older uh, dialects. Uh, Middle High German, bla, B-L-A, meant yellow. Uh, some Scandinavian words uh, referred to a deep swarthy black, for example, Old Norse blamaur, or North Icelandic blamaur, which meant uh, negro, meant black. So how did that come around to being blue, and why did anyone notice this in the first place? A man named William Gladstone, who was very, very into Homer, decided to take a look at some of the things because something struck him as being a little strange. And what that was was that he realized that Homer never described anything as blue. Um, for instance, the sea was dark wine, um, which we would think of as a, as a red or a, a burgundy, a purple. Uh, he described honey as green, and, I, and I'm pretty sure we would think of honey as being a golden color. And he described iron, iron as being violet, and of course we probably would never think of iron as being purple or violet or pastel. Little pastels, so the little pastel iron sword. All the, all the Norsemen come riding down with their purple pastel swords. That's not really how that works. Um, we of course think of iron um, as being a, a a silver, or a silvery gray, or possibly just a gray. Um, if it was hot, we probably would think of it as orange or orange red, but not violet. He uh, he wrote this he wrote this up 
is a paper he was very interested in it was Mr. Gladstone. A linguist named Guy Deutscher actually picked up this paper and decided to do some research on it. And I should let you know that my minor is in linguistics, and so this is the kind of thing that really makes me excited, and the monkey will just go all over the place when we think about stuff like this. So, he tried an experiment with his daughter where they taught her blue items. So, you know, there was a blue ball or blue pants, but they made a very specific effort to not tell her that the sky was blue and this is this is the heart of why it is that there is no word for blue up until recently i uh, i repeated this experiment with my 4 year old friend josephine and we and we got the same results i said josephine will you answer question and she said sure and i said josephine what color is the sky and she said pink Josephine has, as four, as a four-year-old, has no concept as the sky being a thing, a, uh, a a thing that has the property of being anything at all, including any kind of a color. The sky simply doesn't exist for her. Uh, she wants to go to outer space. She wants to know about the stars, but she never asks about the sky. And if you think about the ancient Greeks, Icarus didn't fly into the sky, Icarus flew to the sun. So the ancient Greeks, etc., really didn't have a concept of the sky as being a thing. And so they didn't think of it as having a color. So in any language whatsoever, uh, the, order of the, the order of the words that demonstrate color always are consistent. They always come in a consistent order. And that order actually makes sense. So the first words that you will find that represent color in any language are for black and white. Um, and that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, the night is black. The dark, the, the day is uh, white or bright. Um, the moon is white against a back background of the, a black background of the, of the night sky. So black and white are always first. The next word that will appear is red. It's red. And probably because of blood. Blood is red. It's also the easiest dye to make out in the wild. So if you're looking to, to take your, your skins and your clothing and your fiber crafts and you want to make them a color, the easiest color to make is red. The next two words are green and yellow. They will also appear as yellow and green, but they will always be next. And that is because vegetation. These are, these are the reasons Guy Deutscher thinks that these words show up, and it, and it makes sense. Um, green and yellow, because of vegetation. Um, that, you know, leaves and, and grass and so forth are green. And then as the fall comes, they will go yellow. Finally, will come the word blue. And blue is the hardest color to make in, in as far as dyes go. Blue is not a color that's easy to make. You don't just stumble across it. It also rarely appears in nature. Very rarely. Uh, not very many blue foods. Not a whole lot of blue animals walking around. 
So, of course, the major different, the major thing that is blue in nature is the sky. And if you have no concept of the sky as having a, as as the sky as a concept, then it doesn't look blue. It doesn't look like anything at all because it doesn't exist. Um, it's pretty interesting, and it was pretty fun, uh, and it was pretty cool to, to see it in action with my little friend. So that is why there is no word for the color blue until we get uh, later on in, in history. As I said, around 1300 AD is when it first really starts to come into vogue to say blue. So, next up, this is something that is probably distinctive to monkey minds. Uh, my favorite animal in the whole world is a wombat. It's actually a specific wombat. I met him in Featherdale at Sydney, Featherdale um, in Australia. For those of you who don't know, is a open, uh, like a zoo almost. It's a wildlife preserve in but it's a zoo, it's in zoo format, and it's comprised of animals that have been injured in some way and can so no longer be allowed to live in the wild. They can't be released into the wild after their rehabilitation. And one of them is a wombat. There's a wombat, and he's cute, and he's short and stocky, and, and he has his own mind. When you put a When you put down something in front of him as he's walking, he just will stop walking until the obstacle has been removed. And I don't know about you guys, but I pretty much admire that in an animal. I admire that as in a person, you know, let's let's have some let's have some straightforwardness. Let's you know. Anyway, thinking about the wombats. And in North America we have uh, one wombat. It's the opossum. South America they have a few more uh, marsupials and have a wombat named an opossum. We have a marsupial called the opossum. And there are several marsupials in South America, but of course, most of the marsupials, as we all know, the kingdom of marsupials is Australia. Um, and so I was thinking about the wombats and I was wondering where the rest of our marsupials went. Or maybe did this guy just sort of the, the opossum just kind of managed to show up on his own here in North America. What's the deal with the opossums? So we have to go way back in history for an answer to this one. And these, of course, are all um, these are all theories. They're they're all theories that have been um, validated and backed up with scientific fact. But nobody was ever actually walking around looking at these things uh, all these millions of years ago. But this is a pretty good guess of what happened to the marsupials until sometime in the Cretaceous period, which was between 146 million and 65 million years ago. Australia, Antarctica, and, Amer and South America were all one continent called Gondwana. Uh, excuse me, Gondwana. Gondwana. That's a good word. So they were all one, one supercontinent, Gondwana. 
while they were attached, experts believe that a single belt of forest likely stretched from southeast Australia through what is now Antarctica and uh, and and into southern into southern South America. So you've got one big continent called Gondwana, comprised of Australia, um, from from east to west, Australia, Antarctica, and South America. And there's this big forest that goes between all between all three of them because they're all one continent at this time, and it's a large forest it goes from east to west. Um, all there were that early versions of all three mammal models existed at that time. So what are the three mammal models? Well, they are placental mammals, like us, because we come from a placenta. Um, That's actually yet another topic. Um, We do, in fact, come from eggs just like chickens and everything else. It's just that uh, we have like a permanent egg in the form of the womb. Anyway, placental placental mammals, like us, there are marsupials. Marsupials have a pouch. They give milk and feed their young, and they're furry, and just like any other mammal. So a marsupial is another form of a mammal, and something called a monotreme. And there are not very many monotremes in the world. They're in Australia. Uh, one is the echidna. The other is the platypus. These are egg-laying mammals. They lay eggs. They give milk, and they're little furry things. Um, they're sort of like a they're sort of like a, uh, a halfway between non-placental mammals and placental mammals because they lay eggs, but they're mammals. So the monotremes. So why did the monotremes stay in Australia? And why did the the placentals not enter Australia? Uh, actually, it turns out they actually did, but they kind of were walking this. Uh, the the articles that I read described it as a as an evolutionarily tightrope, and the placental mammals just simply didn't make it in Australia, but they did make it in South America, and the rest of and the rest of that area. Um, and marsupials and monotremes did cross um, over from the Australia side to the South American side. And, and again, because of this evolutionary tightrope, they simply didn't make it as they crossed across. Um, they didn't make it as, the, as uh, the climate changed and so forth. Recent studies suggest uh, that most of, of Australia's marsupials derived from an order of early North American marsupials, of which today a single representative exists, which is a mouse-sized creature native to southern Chile, known as the Monito del Monte, or small monkey of the mountains. So there's a little tiny marsupial. I would have loved to have found a picture that I didn't even think to look. I bet it's really cute. So this answer has everything to do with what happened to Australia after it broke away from Antarctica. So obviously South America, uh, Antarctica, and Australia are no longer combined today. They are three separate little continents. So this happens to uh, this happens about 45 and 38 million years ago. 
Australia breaks away from Antarctica. Antarctica goes south and freezes. South America, obviously, um, this continent has, has is floated to where it is. Australia floated north, and it actually still continues to move north to this day. Um, but this is but this is what happened to it after it broke away uh, between 23 and 15 million years ago. It had like a lush greenhouse phase, and there was a whole bunch of marsupials. There was also a whole bunch of flamingos and something called thunderbirds. Thunderbirds are kind of like elephants and rhinos of the bird kingdom. Um, they competed with the elephants and the rhinos, and uh, the big-bodied wombat-like diprotodon species. I promise I practiced these words. I still can't say them. Diprotodon. Um, About 15 million years ago, rainfall and temperatures began to drop because Australia was moving to the north. And that trend has continued to this day because it's still moving. Um, Over this time, Australia dried out significantly, um, which turned the great northern and central forests into semi-arid grasslands and you can see the evidence of this all through you know the great western desert um, the northern territories all of that um, out where Uluru is etc during its drift Australia has has also managed to keep just north of latitudes where glaciers form so it never was glaciated in any of the ice ages it 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 didn't get covered in ice, which created a lot of, of geological features. Like in North America, you see a lot of glacial basins and so forth. Um, on top of that, over the past 60 million years, there is not a whole lot of active volcanoes, and there's nothing really to cause earthquakes. So there isn't a bunch of that. So their soil has not been circulated and renewed and add to um, from mountains breaking down and so forth. Uh, It's got probably the poorest quality earth of any of the larger land masses. So because of their lower resting metabolic rate, marsupials could survive using less energy than the similar sized placental mammals, which is what the evolutionary tightrope refers to. So the marsupials are using less energy in order to survive and they outbreed the placental mammals and they win the, they win the little battle there and in the other uh, in the other side the placental mammals beat out the marsupials although in southern um, South America there are quite a few marsupials but nowhere near the number as there are in Australia the biggest marsupial that ever lived, this big wombat guy called Diprotodon. He weighed only about 4,400 pounds. Um, I say only because that's just about the third of a modern day elephant. So even the really big uh, marsupials were not that big. So there you have it. The reason why there are marsupials in Australia and not in North America is because everybody got caught on a big boat and some people were better suited to live in Australia's climate and some were better suited and by people I mean critters 
Some were better suited to live in Australia's environment. Some were better suited to live in North and South America's climate. And so that is how evolution works. And that's why there are so many marsupials in Australia. So next week, we have a listener who wants to know, what would happen to your mind if you had a superpower that your body never needed physical rest? So what if, if you could pick any superpower in the world, what if you picked indefatigability? Indefatigability? What would happen if you chose to never run out of physical energy so that your body never needed to sleep? What would happen to your mind? And uh, what is the origin of the high five? What is the origin of the high five? These are the important topics that Feeding the Monkey will be delving into um, in, in next week's episode, which will be next Tuesday. If you have a question, please uh, go to our Facebook page at Feeding the Monkey or on the web at feedingthemonkey.com or email me, monkey, M-O-N-K-E-Y, at feedingthemonkey, all one word, dot com. Monkey at feedingthemonkey.com. Uh, look very forward to uh, looking up your little mind-jumbling questions. And thank you so much for listening. Now some outbeat, <laughs> some upbeat outro music. <laughs>